All right, you can uh, have your Bibles handy today. I don't have a, a direct passage to call you unto per se. Um, we are going to be going to a, a number of passages of Scripture today. As I mentioned before, the last time we were together in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, we considered those exhortations which Paul gave to Timothy that Timothy would teach those specifically within the church, the servants of the church, uh, in Ephesus, that they would submit themselves unto their own masters as unto the Lord. And as we considered this in our time together, we uh, then broadened the teaching, minimally at the least, to reflect the nature of submission as it relates not only to submission of the servant to the master, but also necessarily to the broader concept of submission uh, and the various applications of this within life, husband, wife, parent, child, church, member, government, citizen. And we spoke a little bit, at least in our introduction last week, about the nature of this word submission and, and how it has such a deeply negative connotation within our society today be it as an extension of our society's abhorrence to the concept of slavery or servitude, as an extension of society's emphasis upon children uh, forging their own path, even at the expense of submission of children uh, um, being very comfortable living in rebellion to their parents, even encouraged in society for children to live in rebellion to their parents. In fact, parents often even encouraging their children to live in rebellion. As it relates perhaps to business, Interest, uh, interests, um, employees and the relationship between the employee and the ploy, uh, employer and, and, and workers' rights and such. And all of these ideas to a very real degree uh, are rooted in, in simply our, our philosophy, the abhorrence that the Western world has come to feel for a concept, this concept of submission. Now there's little doubt that these Concepts have filtered strongly into culture and into the church, especially uh, through the various isms of our day. And what I'd like to do in the time together today is, is try to take you to the next level. Last time we were together, I talked practically. We spoke practically. We spoke about what the Bible expects. And just because the Bible tells us to do something it doesn't mean we always like it, right? doesn't mean it's always something that we gravitate toward. And as a matter of fact, even in Christ, some of these things we simply don't gravitate toward naturally. And one of the things that you learn as you grow in the Lord and as you assimilate the Word of God into your life is that those things which at first you hear as it relates to the doctrines of Christ and you say, wow, that, 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 that's not what I want to hear. That's in, in direct competition to my priorities, to my desires. As you grow nearer to Christ, those objections fade and you find a joy. What I'd like to do in the time together that we have today is try to draw you to that place as it relates to this concept of submission, not to any individual necessarily application of submission, but to the concept of submission as a broad whole. I'd like to reason with you in, in a manner of speaking more than teach you today to consider concepts which when combined form an essential truth which can define an essential aspect of how we live our lives. 
concept that, a concept that has come up regularly, especially in the last several months through our study in Hebrews 11 on Tuesday nights, is this idea that faith always comes before blessing. The faith comes first, the blessing comes after. Faith always precedes blessing is the proposition that we have proposed. The idea is that before I can ever experience the results of a promise that God has made, I must first commit myself to those truths that undergird them. I have to take the step before I will see the results. And many times, as it relates to these things, in our lives, God's not necessarily going to even let us see what's at the bottom before he asks us to take the step. But simultaneously, that does not by any means imply that there's no precedent for me to know what happens when I take that step. As a matter of fact, so much of the Word of God, the essence of Hebrews 11, which begins with faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, is this premise. Learn from those who have gone before. You can see a video of all the people, in your mind's eye, of all the people that have taken that step and how it's resulted for them, and now it's your turn. And you don't see what's at the bottom, but you can see what happened to all of these other people that took that step, and God's asking you to take that same step. And as it relates to submission, this reality is just as true as any other doctrine. The servant or the wife or the child or the citizen or the member who sits in cold skepticism of the nature of submission will never, even if they pursue some measure of half-hearted attempt at compliance, understand the joys that accompany it. The joys that accompany submission can only be realized in my faith and obedience to the call. It is only... Thus, in these examples of others that we can truly know those joys apart from us exercising the faith necessary to submit ourselves. And do take note that the word we use here as it relates to submission is not happiness, but joy. Much of our time today will be focused on defining this very thing. Indeed, if, if happiness is the aim unto which any of us seek in this life, you're going to find yourself often operating in direct contradiction to that which might bring you joy. Nowhere in God's word do we find a promise of happiness. There is a distinction. Happiness is a state of being that is entirely dependent upon my circumstances. Now, it is, it is naturally dependent upon how I interpret those circumstances so that a person who has what we might describe as very poor circumstances might, because of some measure of thankfulness or whatnot, still be happy, be content. And yet happiness tends to follow that roller coaster of emotions in life where we have circumstances that are good and circumstances that are bad and our happiness and our sadness, uh, it, it, it tends to follow a line that is, is consistent with the fluctuation in circumstances. But joy is intended to be something different. Joy is an abiding peace and a comfort that transcends those circumstances that abides above them so that whether I'm feeling at this time happy or sad, there is an inner peace, an inner confidence, an inner recognition, as we sang this morning, how can I fear? The idea of how can I fear does not mean I'm not going to come into fearful circumstances. 
The, the question, how can I fear, does not mean that there's never going to be a temptation in my heart to fear. That when you're driving your child to the emergency room, or when you're looking at the, your paycheck and you're looking at your bills, or when you're considering what may be in the future because you're not being told what may be and you see some, some writing on the wall as it relates to some sort of danger or some life, major life change uh, and you, you are not sure what's going on, those things are still going to be there. That is still going to seek to alter your emotions in some way. But do you have that abiding peace and contentment that transcends those emotions, that transcends those circumstances, that puts you in a place of confidence and a confidence that won't be shaken? See, joy and happiness are not the same thing and can often operate entirely independent one of another. Happiness is an emotion. It's a perception. It's a feeling. It's a persuasion. It's something fleeting. It can come as quickly as it goes. It can be manipulated by externalities, be that the circumstances that we face or even the assurances of those that are around us. I can be convinced to be happy. I can be convinced not to be happy. I can go into a circumstance and somebody can, can through their confidence or through their assurance, change my feelings on a given matter without the matter itself even changing. This is... Um, something that, that we, we see in children. I took my children on a roller coaster not too long ago. And the manner of my reaction to that roller coaster had a large effect on how my daughters reacted to that roller coaster. You could see the fear in their eyes as the roller coaster begins, but then when they see dad with his hands in the air going, woohoo, and, and, and so excited, it can fundamentally alter their perception of the stimulus that they're feeling at that moment to where they begin to recognize the stimulus, which in any reasonable person would be fear, right? Because you're being tossed around and, and, and you're going all over the place to, oh, there's a measure of security here. My father has confidence, therefore I'm going to have confidence and I'm going to be able to enjoy this a little more than they otherwise would. I, my, my disposition actually influenced their feelings on the matter. All of that can happen with happiness because it's rooted in emotions and circumstances. Joy is that abiding peace and contentment, however, above circumstances. Joy is not a reaction to life. May I say that again? Joy is not a reaction to life. It is a disposition through which we live life. It is the context within which we live life by which we see the world around us. And joy, as we know from Scripture, is, an is a direct outworking of abiding in Christ. So as I said, I want to reason with you today. I want to reason with you on this topic of submission. And I want to show you how submission becomes a joyful thing. Regardless of the context of that submission. From a human perspective, the idea of submission is grating. The idea that I am deferring to another the idea that I am yielding my rights to another, the idea that I am setting myself aside for the sake of another is something which in any number of contexts is, is not natural and it's not pleasant. But what the scriptures tell us is that in obedience is joy. And particularly as it relates to this concept of submission, 
we see the end of true submission as the Bible presents it is, in fact, joy. And we begin this journey in John 15. In John 15, verses 9 through 12, the Bible says this, As the Father hath loved me, Jesus speaking, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Here we find Jesus speaking in John 15 about the concept of abiding in him. And as we consider this admonition, we find our Savior call upon those who love him to continue in his love. And the manner in which we abide in that love, Jesus says, is to keep his commandments just as Jesus kept the Father's commandments and so he abides in his father's love, right? So this is what we have here. Jesus was abiding in his father's love, and we know he was abiding in his father's love because he was keeping his commandments. And this brought him to this place of joy that remains in him. And he commands us, for the purpose of joy remaining in us, to abide in him as he abides in his father, and we abide in Him in the same way He abides in His Father. He keeps His Father's commandments. We keep the Son's commandments. And lest we wonder, well, what are the Son's commandments? He gives it to us right here. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. The reason for telling us these things, he says in John 15, is joy. Because in keeping these commandments... There is joy, and not just joy, but he says here that their joy might be full, fullness of joy. What a wonderful thing it is when you can live in fullness of joy, when you can live in such a way that there is a full peace, a full abiding, a full contentment in one's life, regardless of the circumstances that are around you. How long has it been since you have operated in joy? Is that the context within which your life operates? In this context of joy. It can be. Christ wants it to be. And he tells us how. Love one another as he has loved us. Consider with me the implications of this statement. Fullness of joy is rooted in keeping Christ's commandments as exemplified by keeping the commandment of his Father. Fullness of joy rooted in obedience and submission that's what we just read, isn't it? Fullness of joy rooted in obedience. Submission to Christ. Well, then we take it a step further. Fullness of joy rooted in submission to the commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that commandment being this, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. Well, so then we ask the question, how has Christ loved us? Right? That's the next question. How has Christ loved us? loved us. If we love one another as Christ has loved us, and in loving one another we're keeping his commandments, and in keeping his commandments we're abiding in him, and in abiding in him we're having fullness of joy. Then how has Christ loved us? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ loved us so much he gave himself fully to, the, to, to, to his very life for us. 
And this leads us to the next chain of our careful reasoning together then. What is love? Anytime anyone ever asks you what is love, you point them to 1 Corinthians 13, right? In our Bibles, the word is charity, and yet it's our word love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this, Paul writing, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, love, it profiteth me nothing. And so Paul begins by, by laying just how important, laying the foundation for his argument as to just how important this love is. And then he defines it in verses four through seven. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This is the definition of charity. This is the definition of love, as God defines love. Long-suffering, patient, kind, does not envy another, does not operate in a context of envy, in a context of desiring uh, and longing for those things that another has, is not, uh, does not vaunt itself, does not elevate it himself, is not seeking to elevate himself, especially at the expense of another, right? Is not puffed up. There's no room for pride in love. There's no room for self-service in love. There's no room for, for self-conceit in true love. Does not behave itself unseemly. Love is appropriate in context, situation, and need. There's something that you can say, my wife could say something to me in one context, say the same thing to me in another context. One of them can be entirely appropriate. The other one is absolutely not, right? The same words could come out of her mouth, and yet in one context, it would be entirely inappropriate for it to, it to happen. It's, it's not showing love. It would be harmful or painful or, or unkind. And yet, in, in an entirely different context, those same words can be fine. Love distinguishes the difference. Seeketh not her own, not considering myself, but the other, the object of my love, is not easily provoked, falls right in line with being patient, is not easily provoked, is not easily provoked into swift reactions, to overreactions. Thinketh no evil, does not intend evil, does not assume evil. Love assume, does not assume evil intentions. Love does not intend evil intentions. The word evil there simply means negative or wrong, right? Not necessarily wicked. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Love elevates truth above convenience or emotion or perception. We talk about this regularly. It is not love for me to lie to you in order to make you feel good about yourself. That's not love, is it? It can't be love. For me to allow you to persist in a lie about yourself or about someone else simply so that you don't have to feel bad about yourself or you don't have to go through the, 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 the personal crisis that it would be if I told you the truth. 
That's not love. It's not love for me to tell my wife that that dress looks good on her if it doesn't. It might be convenient for me to not shake a hornet's nest, but it's not love to lie to her. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This picture here that's given of love is of absolute selflessness. If I could, if I could summarize it all, I would use that word, selflessness. In fact, we regularly define love at the church as a conscious choice to do what is best for the object of my love, regardless of self-interest or regardless of circumstance. Selflessness is love. Thus, it is almost impossible in the biblical definition of love to separate love from submission. And that's important. Because if Christ's command is love one another as I have loved you, and if by keeping that command we're abiding in his love, and if by abiding in his love we have fullness of joy, then if we want that joy, we are going to abide in his love, thus keep his commandments, thus love one another, thus be selfless one toward another. And so, submission must bring joy. The wholesale pouring of myself into another for the good of another. The things described here are not those which elevate my own benefit because my love has nothing to do with my benefit. The essence of love is the benefit of another. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 3. He says in verses 8 through 13, Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, speaking of knowledge, and we prophesy in part, of course, speaking of prophecy, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, there's that knowledge again, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And again, he's talking there, the seeing, the seeing through a glass darkly, that's prophecy. The knowing in part, that's knowledge, right? Because he's comparing knowledge, prophecy, and love. And he says love is complete. Prophecy is in part. Knowledge is in part. Love is in full. We have a full definition and an understanding of love. We've been given that in fullness. We've been given prophecy in part. We've been given knowledge in part. We see through a glass darkly as it relates to prophecy. It's like we're looking through a misted window. You read Revelation and you keep rubbing on that glass, right? You're rubbing, you're rubbing, you're rubbing, you're rubbing, you're rubbing, but you're never going to see any clearer on that glass. It's misted glass. You're going to rub your hand raw before you, can, before you can see any clearer into prophecy because it's only been given to us in part. Knowledge in part. I can delve the depths of the knowledge of the Word of God and that's wonderful, but I still will only ever have it in part. That iceberg goes down way too deep and God simply hasn't given us enough. We don't have the equipment to delve it. But you know what God has given us every single capacity to understand and to live out in full? Love. Love. To this end, love is superior to knowledge or prophecy. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying. Prophecies will fail because they are incomplete. 
They, 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 will, they, they will fail us in our understanding is what that means. It's not that God's prophecies will fail, but, but we will fail in our understanding. We will fail in, in, in our comprehension because they're incomplete. It's imperfect. There's a time when, when they will cease. There's a time uh, when they continue, but men cease to listen. Tongues fail, right? They're imperfect. There's a time when they cease. There's a time where they continue, but where, where men will cease to listen. Knowledge will fail because it's imperfect. It's limited. It's darkened. But then Paul says, and follow this reasoning, we know in part, we have that knowledge in part, we prophesy in part, it's limited to the degree that God has given it, that we've been enlightened, all of these things, but charity never fails. When that which is perfect, complete, is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Perfect here meaning, meaning finished or complete, not meaning sinless. Knowledge is incomplete, prophecy is incomplete, but love is complete. And to that end, if we are pursuing perfection, we are pursuing love. We're putting away the childish things, the things which are in part, and we're continuing unto perfection, unto that which is complete, unto that which is mature. We'll see through that glass darkly as it relates to prophecy. It'll be all being made known someday. We, we exercise faith. We rest in hope. That's what he says here at the end. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. See, faith... And hope, they are things which I live in today with an expectation of tomorrow, but charity is here. Charity has been realized in your heart. The love of God has been shed abroad in your heart through Christ. We have the fullest definition of what love is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no mystery surrounding love. There is no mystery surrounding love. It has been realized. It has been exemplified. It has been personified in every conceivable way in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So consider the line of reasoning with me. To have the fullness of joy is to abide in Christ's love as Christ abode in the Father's love. To abide in Christ's love is to obey His commandments as Christ obeyed His Father's commandments. This is Christ's commandment that we love one another as He has loved us. And to love one another is to live in a completion of heart and attitude toward one another that is above all else selfless in intention and in action. Holy regarding the other, regardless of self or circumstance. And of course, our example in this is Christ himself, right? If we are to abide in his love, if we are to keep his commandments, thus love one another, we can look to Christ. Christ set us an example that we should follow in his steps. He's not asking us to do something that he did not do himself. He's not asking us to partake in anything that he did not partake in. He was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we go through. He knows our struggles. He knows the, the, the burdens that we bear. He knows the pains of the flesh. But he has also given us of his spirit. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we find these examples and these exhortations throughout. In John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet, the master, the teacher, and the God of all flesh, the word of God incarnate. 
begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, we, we, we're going to skip some verses here. Of course, Peter uh, initially refuses, and there's a whole interaction there with theological implications. But I want us to stick to, to the idea of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So we jump to verse 12. The Bible says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, so he finished washing the feet, he puts on his clothing, he sits down, and he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? Well, yeah, you've washed our feet, right? He says in verse 13, Ye call me Master and Lord, and, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that, is, that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Am I greater than my master? Am I greater than my Lord? That I would deign to feel as though I have the right to operate under my own auspices. That I would not condescend. That I would not yield my rights. That I would not yield my time. That I would not yield my resources to serve another. To love one another. Because I have my own priorities. When my Lord and Savior, the God of all flesh, the Master of all that is, did not take such liberty upon himself. There's a contradiction there, isn't there? That I would have such a mind. That I would assume such a philosophy or determination. And you know what's the most interesting thing about it? in assuming this kind of selfishness, which of course is rampant. It's rampant in our society. It's rampant in, 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 in us. Our, our, we, we, are, we are a selfish society. We are a selfish church. I'm not saying this church, although probably this church, as much as any other, in, in, in a sense. We are selfish people. We are, we, 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 we are a very self-centered society. It is a very me-centric society. Self-help. Self-everything, right? Everything is self. And society is convinced that in self is happiness. And the scriptures tell us that it's the exact opposite. That it is actually our self-focus that is stripping from us our joy, stripping from us our contentment, stripping from us everything that we actually want, that we're trying to seek in self, is rooted in selflessness. But this takes such faith. This is why I'm reasoning. I want to reason with you. If, if, if you can get this, then stepping into whatever submission you need to, whether that's children or wives or whatever, that, that, that part is not, that, that part's going to be natu a natural step. Not to say there won't, wouldn't be difficulties, but, but that part is, is just the next step. But, but if you can assume the mindset, if you can turn everything that society has told you about self upside down, and recognize, peek behind the curtain and see that everything, all of this, this self-help, self-focus philosophy in society 
and everything that they promise from it is hollow and empty and unfulfilled and that it is actually in the exact inverse where you will find what you seek. Then you will be on the plane where you can actually receive this teaching of submission with clarity. And not until then will you be able to receive it with clarity. And by the way, not just the teaching of submission, right? The function of the church, the nature of, 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 of every element of the Christian life filters through this concept. So there's an inextricable link within the church between loving Christ, obeying his commands, and humbly serving one another. Or as Paul would put it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So he says, don't be foolish, don't be unwise, understand the will of the Lord. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This is the church. We come together. We, we are redeeming the time. We are seeking the filling of the Spirit of God. We are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are giving thanks unto the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we are submitting ourselves one to another. An outworking of the love and the reverence that we have for the one who purchased us with his own blood. It is this spirit that we are carried to cultivate, we are called to cultivate within our hearts and to carry into our interactions. So then as we reason together, we continue to do so. And by the way, you know, Ephesians 5.22 naturally then gives way to wives submit to your husbands. We'll talk about that in a moment. But take note that at the end of Ephesians 5, it says, this is a mystery and I speak concerning Christ in the church. Paul actually has never left his context of Christ in the church. He's simply giving an exemplary nature of that in the relationship of the husband to the wife. The teaching is on Christ in his church. We draw out from it this element of, of husband and wives and it's, it's valid to do so. But don't lose sight of that. That the submission is actually about Christ to his church, or church to Christ. And the husband-wife relationship is simply a, a, a shadow of that. We're called as followers of Christ. I'm going to keep coming back to this tra train of thought here. Abide in his love. Keep his commandments. Thus love one another. We look to Christ for the example by which he calls us to love and to serve and to submit. He's defined love that way. He's exemplified it in his own life. He, he's exemplified it in the washing of the disciples' feet all the way to the death on the cross. In this, Jesus says, we keep his commandments, we abide in his love, and that brings to us fullness of joy. Here in Ephesians 5, we see the call to submit one to another in the church. And then within the scope, this immediately gives way to this heightened level of interaction and, and a direct example of that interaction with wives and husbands. So Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for, even the or for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Immediately after this call to mutual submission as exhorted by Christ himself, there's this further call into submission to a direct level of authority. 
In this case, we see wives and their husbands. Last week, we talked about masters and servants. Ephesians 6 talks about children and parents. Romans 13 talks about citizens and their governments. 1 Timothy talks about church to their elders. And though we find all manner of authority context within which these principles operate, when we trace them all to their root, there's a singular root. The foundation of these, exhort, of these exhortations is a, a call to obey the command of our Lord that we would love and serve one another within the context to which he's called us. And to obey Christ is to love him. And to love Christ is to abide in him. And to abide in Christ is to have fullness of joy. And this is all summarized beautifully in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye, may all, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John writes on the, in these verses, these things write, we write unto you that your joy may be full. Now, he's not just speaking of the first chapter here, which I've read to you. He's speaking of the entire epistle, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. That, that's, that's a good summary, however, of the book. The truth unto which I seek to point us today, as supported by this trail of biblical reasoning, is that submission, as we have presented it in the scriptures, both to one another to our authorities within the nature of God's design, it is, it, it's not only expected of Christians, but as an extension of our obedience unto Christ, our submission to one another, our submission to God's design to earthly authorities in our lives is our source of joy. Not necessarily always happiness, but joy. And it does, as we considered last week. Not only redound to our joy, but it also redounds to testimony. It is within this context that we're best able to exemplify sound doctrine. You want to live in a manner that reflects sound doctrine to the world around you, you will not be able to do it outside the scope of submission. Last week, the warning in 1 Timothy was, servants do this that the word of God be not blasphemed. Then we went to Titus 2 and said, Wives, do this, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That is the context within which our testimony is exemplified before the world, the context of submission. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a conclusion that whether or not it seems to be so, obedience to our authorities is obedience to Christ, and obedience to Christ is a love for Christ, and a love for Christ brings us fullness of joy because it means that we're abiding in Him.
if you can, there, there are people that are wrestling with this under the sound of my voice today. If you can unshackle yourself from your need to be number one, if you can unshackle yourself from this lie of self, they are shackles. You're sitting in a dungeon, you've got shackles on, and everyone else sitting in that dungeon is insisting that you're free. If you can unshackle yourself from that, it, it will open up a world, a world of joy, a world of contentment, that can be known in no other way. Christ did not just teach this. He exemplified it. He lived this way. He forged the path upon which he calls us to tread. He's not asking us to do something new or unique. He did it, as have many others. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also... Are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We see a juxtaposition here between the, the decision that Christ made to submit himself even unto death and the joy that was set before him. It was for the joy that was set before him that he entered into submission. It was not in opposition to the joy that was set before him that he entered into submission. It was not in opposition to the joy that was set before him that he set himself aside, that he grieved in the garden. And we know that this was a choice for him. We know that this was a wrestling for him because in the garden he was sweating as it were drops of blood. And he was on his knees and he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He endured the shame. He endured the cross, despised the shame, meaning thinking little of it, disesteeming the shame. That was but a small hurdle if it meant the joy that was set before him. Self is but a hurdle standing between you and the joy that is set before you. Self is a roadblock. But if your mind is rightly adjusted, it is, a, it is but a small thing. It is but a small thing to exercise a measure of submission and obedience to the Lord if your joy might be full. It is but a small thing to humble yourselves one before another if your joy may be full. It is but a small thing to set myself aside, to think every man not on his own things but on the things of others if it might mean fullness of joy. It is that philosophy that Paul espouses in Philippians chapter 3. What things were counted gain to me, those I counted but lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. 
And do count the badung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. Paul says all of those things, all of those things that I could have, all of those things that, that could define me, they are but small things to give up if it might mean the joy of my Lord. And this same thing, as it relates to Christ's example, of course, is exemplified in Philippians 2 as well, isn't it? Verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He submitted himself for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? Verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The majority of the men and women in this room have exercised faith unto belief whereby they have reckoned that the promises of God through Jesus Christ as it relates to salvation by grace through faith through his finished work is of such a truth that they will leave behind those dead works, that they will leave behind anything and everything else that they're trusting in to secure for themselves salvation and they will place their trust and their rest wholly in the finished work of Jesus Christ and that's the gospel. But to one degree or another, many of us, if not all of us in this room, are staring this other promise right in the eye from that same God, from that same God who, who, has, who has secured for us eternal life, from that same God, and through that same process, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are, we are, we are observing the humility of him submitting himself even unto death, submitting himself unto the Father, submitting himself unto his earthly authority, submitting himself unto the process that he went through. He submitted himself to these things for the joy that was set before him. And that same joy is set before us, but we're not, we don't have the faith to be obedient. And it begins with this mindset shift. Our joy is not rooted in the things which are happening in submission. Our joy is rooted in the promise of what obedience will bring in the future. I don't submit myself to my authorities because I know it will naturally make me happy. Much to the rather, I submit myself to my authorities because by doing so, I know I rest in the path of God's promises. And that in due season, those who sow to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6. And it's perhaps some of that in this world, but most certainly in the next. The rewards of said submission will cause any suffering or loss that that submission might have brought into my life to pale in comparison. In other words, our joy in submission is not rooted in the physical outcomes of that submission, but rather in the spiritual outcomes of that submission. To this end, we assume the mind of Christ, a mind which, 
looks upon the things of others, a mind which humbles itself in love, a mind which loves one another as Christ has loved us. And he showed us how he loved us. He showed us in John 13 as he washed the feet of the disciples. He showed us as he carried the cross up Golgotha. He showed us as he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He showed us in that he gave up the ghost. And so we assume the mind of Christ, a mind which looks upon these things. And this leads us to our conclusion this morning. If you have the faith to receive it, the greatest heights of joy are found in the deepest valleys of humble submission. What I've said this morning is going to rub more than a few of you the wrong way. I have pet the cat in the wrong direction this morning. And while I never enjoy doing that, I have full confidence that what I'm saying is rooted in very clear and established biblical truth. And so I say it without hesitation. There are those in our midst today who absolutely loathe the idea of biblical submission, either one to another or to some set authority. Be it a child toward their parent this morning, be it an employee toward your employer this morning, be it a wife toward her husband this morning, be it a citizen toward your government this morning, be it a member toward an elder this morning. You have all the reasons in the world as to why you have a right to your way of thinking in this regard. You have all the reasons in the world why that authority is not worthy of your time, not worthy of your consideration, not worthy of your respect, not worthy of these things. You have all the reasons in the world why you are, are determined to secure your own happiness through yourself. You have all the reasons in the world why these principles don't apply to you or why the Bible doesn't say what I've said the Bible says this morning. And by the way, I've been wrong before and I will be again, right? And what you haven't considered, which I hope you are considering today, is that by feverishly protecting what you see to be your right to your own thoughts, your actions, your autonomy, yourself, you are, you are at a net loss, not a net gain. You have lost more than you've gained. You have given up more than you've received in return. You have made a bad deal. You have traded fullness of joy for the scraps of this life. You have tra traded a seat at the master's table to root through the dumpster in the back alley. That's what, that, that's what you've done. And you're convinced that that dumpster is the good stuff. Perhaps because you've never actually experienced the fullness of the master's table. And you're stripping yourself of biblical joy. God hasn't done that. God hasn't changed. God's promises are there. They're there for us. We know we, we, they're, they're in his word. But you're not tapping into it. You're missing out on one of the most wonderful concepts, one of the most wonderful realities of the Christian life. You're yielding the joy and the reward that inherently comes by giving something that you want in this life for the promises of the life to come. And if you have the faith to receive it, then you will understand that you're hanging on to the broken remnants of your former life outside of Christ. 
at the expense of the very riches of Christ himself. At the fullness of everything that he embodied within his life, his ministry, his death, and his exaltation. And this is either in true rebellion or perhaps in confused delusion. You've just given into the philosophies that are around us. They're everywhere, right? You can't, you can't turn around without seeing some element of the exaltation of self in our society today. Or perhaps even just in ignorance. You've just never heard this before. Somehow, many of us have believed the lie that your happiness is rooted in your way. In the way of man, in the way of self, rather than in God's way, which is a way of humility, which is a way of submission, which is a way of loving one another as Christ has loved us. And believe me when I say I know full well with you that this concept is not easy. Submission is hard in every context. Submission is hard. Having the eyes to see by faith what you actually want is the thing which your natural man says is going to put you at a disadvantage in this life. Faith, faith, by faith you have to see that joy is rooted in that which the world says will make you miserable. That's a faith proposition. That faith is not blind. We have an entire book of examples of this. You can see lives of people who exemplify this all the way to the very essence of Jesus Christ himself exemplified this. If Christ had not gone to the cross, Christ would not have been exalted. He would not have, he would not have experienced the joy that was set before him if he had not submitted himself. Christ's way taking upon himself the form of a man with all of our weaknesses, all of our needs, submitting himself to a sin-cursed world with all of its disadvantages and its struggles and its miseries, dying an ignoble death at the hands of corrupt and evil men against whom he spoke nothing. This was not what any part of the man Christ Jesus wanted to do, but he knew, as we can know with these eyes of faith, that submission is the path to joy. So what about you and I today? Do we have the faith to live in this kind of submission, as the scriptures call us? Do we have the faith to see that this path, the path of submission, is the path to joy? Not always necessarily happiness, not always necessarily spiritual success, not always, it's cer certainly not the easy path, but it's the path to joy. Do we have the faith like Moses, who Hebrews 11 says, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Can you see that joy? Can you see that reward? Can you see that exaltation? Can you see the joy of the Lord? Can you see it before you? Do you have the faith to see it and to recognize that these things that are encroaching on our lives are actually stripping us, are actually competing with that goal? Can you see that by faith? That, 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 that level is the first level of this. Before you get to, how am I going to submit to my boss? How am I going to submit to mom and dad? You have to see the joy of submission. You have to understand philosophically. You have to understand on this, on this upper level, this broad level, you have to understand the nature of submission in the scriptures. 
And the fact that by submitting, you're not putting yourself at a disadvantage in any way, shape, or form because you have a God who will be so thrilled because you're abiding in him. Do you see him who is invisible this morning? Can you live in this persuasion, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would often end his parables and other teachings with a common phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? That's the call this morning. I don't know how many of us have ears to hear this message. It isn't an easy one to accept, but if you have the ears to hear on the authority of God's word, you will find in submission, the kind of submission that we considered last week, the kinds of submission that the Bible teaches, these elements of submission, fullness of joy. Not because of the object of your submission. This has nothing to do with the worthiness of your parents. This has nothing to do with the worthiness of your husband. This has nothing to do with the worthiness of your employ employer. This has nothing to do with the worthiness of your government. This has nothing to do with the worthiness of your pastor. This has everything to do with the worthiness of Christ. And if you have the eyes to see this, the blessing and the rewards that come by abiding in the one who has called you unto submission, you will be set free from a huge body of lies found in this world that will put you on a path to joy and to contentment that you simply can find no other way. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.